Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. On this special edition of The Thriller Zone, I am in Miami, Florida, on location, so to speak. Uh, Some sad news, my father-in-law went in for open-heart surgery a couple of days ago, and uh, Tammy and I had planned to be back in time so that I could be doing my recording there at home in my studio with all my bells and whistles and toys. But uh, after a couple of complications, we had to prolong our visit, which is good because we were having a great time. The downside is um, I ran into a little bit of technical issues. Uh, The Wi-Fi isn't quite as fast as mine at home and blah de blah de blah However, everything worked out and I think you're going to enjoy today's show where I'm speaking with Stephen James and his latest thriller, Broker of Lies. Now, if you know Stephen James, he is the best-selling author of 18 novels that have won more than a dozen awards and includes books from the Bowers File series, the Jevin Banks Experience, the YA Blur Trilogy, and his latest in a brand new series called Travis Brock Thriller Series. And Travis Brock is his latest protagonist, and he's something else. So without any further ado, and begging your patience for a little bit of sound issues, I'm going to do my very best to make it sound as good as I can. Please welcome your friend and mine, Stephen James. First of all, welcome to the Thriller Zone, Stephen James. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now... You're going to have to bear with me just a little bit. I'm usually that guy that has all the bells and whistles. I've got the special headphones and the microphones and the lighting, but I'm still here in Florida. So we're probably going to have little tiny glitches along the way, but I think we'll be fine. All right. No worries. Okay. Now, I got to say out of the gate, Stephen, I feel like, I, I may have said this before, I feel like I should know you. I mean, <laughs> I've heard your name over the last several months. I've been following you on social media. Then I start looking at your output. By the way, we're going to be talking about this beauty, Broken Lies, uh, in just a couple minutes. But I, uh, I went, I've certainly been attached to him, known him somehow. And I'm like, no, I haven't. So I'm so glad we're having this chance to sit down. Yeah, no, that's great. I was trying to remember if our paths had crossed either, and uh, I just couldn't recall if if it had. So it's good to be here. I mean, between your between your books, your podcast, your speaking engagements, your prolific <laughs> output, I'm like this. Everybody should know about this guy. So we're going to do our best to make sure that everybody in my world gets to know your world. That sounds sounds like a good plan. And I, you know, a lot of people have been singing your praises. Um, so kudos to that. And I want to, I'm going to jump into Broker of Lies, but I want to hear more about the Story Blender. Now, this podcast, someone referred me to you. I want to say Eric Bishop. We have a mutual friend in Eric Bishop, hmm. don't we? I can't recall for sure. Either way, someone recommended your podcast, and I yeah. went and checked it out. And, dude, you've had some heavy hitters, and, and you've been <laughs> doing it. Now, tell me how that got started, how you're able to balance writing and podcasting, something I tried to mm. do before. Your, your, your output is is stellar, so I'm, I'm trying to see how you manage all the plates spinning on the <laughs> 
Well, I appreciate it. So I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was teaching a master class on fiction writing up at Thriller Fest in the summertime. It's kind of a suspense and thriller writers conference. And I thought it'd be amazing if we could kind of capture that idea of a class on a podcast. So I started doing it and I guess I've done about 200 episodes now over the years. And we've had I mean, the guests that we've had have sold, I think, 2 billion books, if I recall, or at least at least 1.5 billion. I mean, we've had Dean Koontz and Orson Scott Card, uh, George R. R. Martin, and James Patterson, many others. But um, those are some of the ones that just popped to the front of my mind. Sue Grafton was on before she passed away. So, uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. And basically, I pick their brains, and I say, what are the secrets to... Great storytelling, and um, and uh, they they share them, so it's amazing. You know, people often ask me, like, you know, dude, what is your what is your job like? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Uh, I get to sit down like with Stephen James, and <laughs> like you just said, pick his brain, find out his secrets, um, and it, it's it's yet another great testimony to the community in which we work, the mm. fact that everyone just wants everybody to win. And I have yeah. not seen that often. Have you? Honestly, within this community of writers and thriller writers, suspense writers, and so on, it seems like it's not, com- I'm, I'm sure it's competitive in a certain realm, but like people don't treat you that way as the competition. They treat you as an associate. And um, they just kind of say, hey, let me help you out. Let me give you some advice. Let me write you a blurb, endorsement, all that kind of stuff. And so I just love this community, to be honest. You know, I guess I got connected with uh, sort of the thriller community about maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, I found it to be very supportive. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, my past has been radio and TV and film, and that is not the general consensus. I mean, it's pretty cutthroat. So to step into a world like this where you one would think that everybody is competitive, I'm with you. You haven't found it, and uh, it it couldn't be more gracious. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And and people are willing. Think about it this way. Let's say that you worked at Apple. And you were one of the engineers at Apple and you came up with all of your secrets to create the next product. And so you went to IBM and basically told them all the trade secrets that you'd come up with. That's basically what authors do, like at conferences and so on. It's kind of like, here are all of the trade secrets that I've come up with over the last 20 or 30 years. And I'm here to share them with you. And and I'm just going to tell you, as much as I can to the competition or whatever. It's just great. I remember the first time I went to Thriller Fest, it was 2019, and I'm sitting in oh, yeah. one of my very first classes, and Steve Barry stands up and he says, pull out a pad and pen right now. I'm going to give you something. It was either 10 or 20, my top 20 secrets of how I make yeah. this. Work. And he had, this is right <laughs> after he just said, I've written this, 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 this. Uh-huh. And I literally sat there going, looking around going, wait, he's he's going to tell me how he does it? And <laughs> I, Stephen, I could not write fast enough. And I remember, yeah. I still have those notes to this day. And I'm like, here's a legend giving me the inside scoop. Now, of course, the difference between 
your average bear sitting down and taking his notes and crafting a story of his magnitude is one, you know, is another thing. But now, Steve's a great guy. He was actually kind enough to uh, write the foreword to uh, my book, Troubleshooting Your Novel. Uh, so it's a, it's a craft book for writers, and um, so it was. Uh, I was really thrilled that he was able to do that. I I, I hold him in great regard and and respect his work and uh, it's been neat to kind of become friends with him over the years yeah and i want to come back to that book in a minute because i'm fascinated by a couple of your nonfiction books but let's go ahead and jump out with broker of lies because i want to be sure that i hit a few things um first of all that opening chapter is gut-wrenching i remember thinking I, I think i picked it up and i was starting to read it on the flight out here to miami uh, about a little over a week ago and I, I don't want to give away too much, but that protagonist, I think it's a, I'm not going to give away too much by saying he's burned, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's not giving away too much, you know. Um, <clears throat> I love, uh, you know, when people talk about, like, writing an opening chapter, they always want to hook the reader, which I understand. But I always want to look at the um, opening as also a way of making promises that are congruent with the where the story goes, but also that provide escalation, opportunity for escalation. So, you know, when I was working on that story, interestingly enough, he's burned uh, because he went into a, a house to try and save his, a burning house that he tried to save his, his wife. And uh, <clears throat> so when I was a baby, I, I don't know if I, this has ever come out in any interviews, but I was burned quite badly when I was an infant. Uh, actually, I was 11 months old my mom was cooking french fries in a deep fat fryer. I was toddling around. I actually grabbed the cord and two gallons of 180 degree grease fell down on my, on my face. And my dad got me in the bathtub and got most of it off my face. But of course, I have scars on my neck here and my chest and arm as well. And, and uh, so I grew up with these, with these scars. And, um, you know, people always asking me, you know, how'd you get your scars? And what was that like? And I've never really written a character that had that, I guess, a background history or dilemma or whatever. But uh, so when I was writing some of his scenes where people notice his scars and well, how'd you get that? Whatever. And it's like, I was kind of writing those a little bit from, you know, growing up and going through that myself. This is so funny. And I don't want to steal any of your thunder. But when I was reading no. that... The very first thing that popped into my head, very first question, I'm like, I wonder if Stephen, sometime in his life has gotten badly burned because hmm. it's such an unusual thing to talk about, maybe unusual thing to talk about. It's a different thing to shoot out of the gate with. And then the, the visceral way in which you described it, I just would, I mean, I was in agony viscerally, mentally, thinking of what it was going like. So it's very interesting yeah. to say that you as a child just had the same. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. So I don't, of course I don't remember getting burned. It was far before my first memory, but, but, um, but I did spend a month behind one of those oxygen tents, you know, so I wouldn't get infections and so on and, and all that. But uh, of course, growing up, interestingly enough, there's a, a little bit of a strange story when I was um, maybe 13 or 14, I was supposed to go see my uh, plastic surgeon uh, that had done the surgery and so on back when I was a kid. And so we got a, a note from this office that said he was missing uh, on Lake Michigan. 
and they thought he might have drowned. They found his boat, and we're like, oh, that's crazy. So went to a new one, and, and then, well, six months later, the news station out of Milwaukee found him living in Florida. My doctor had faked his death because he had so many malpractice suits against him. <laughs> so he'd faked his death and moved down to Florida to live in Florida. And um, I was like, it's just the strangest stories all revolve around these uh, these scars. And um, I still remember the other scar story that I have is um, I was working at a camp when I was maybe 18 or 19. Yeah. And this kid came up, and um, of course I was wearing a t-shirt. He could see the scars on my arms anyway. And so he goes, um, Steve, how'd you get your scars? He had long hair, kind of long sleeve shirt, long pants, even though it's summertime. And sometimes I'd make up stories, you know, like shark attacks or motorcycle accidents or knife fights. But uh, for whatever reason, this day I said, when I was 11 months old, my mom was cooking French fries and the grease fell on my head. And this boy rolls his sleeve back to show me his arm, flips his hair back to show me his head. And he said, when I was eight months old, my sister was cooking French fries. Oh, my God. And uh, showed me his scar on his leg. And uh, so it was it was crazy. And, and I said, well, look, it's just the shape of your skin. It doesn't change who you are. Because clearly he was self-conscious about this. And I said, it's just, you know, it's just the shape of your skin. And. And so later in the week, I saw him running down to go swimming with his hair kind of blown back in the breeze, you know, shorts on. And it's just a powerful moment that I think sometimes our stories, you know, can help other people get through difficult times. Maybe, you know, maybe the same kind of story or whatever. So that, that was a really poignant moment for me, just realizing that telling my story sometimes can help other people. Well, that... I love the I love the fact that a, a lesson came out of that. Um, yeah, I along that same line in a in, in a tangent. I read somewhere that you're uh, quite a research nut, and uh, I, I had had in my mind to ask you about. Well, did you go to some burn centers to discover mm. more? But now, <laughs> now I know the inside scoop that you live. <laughs> the inside scoop, yeah, yeah. But staying with that thinking. I read somewhere also, especially with a book this dense in uh, intrigue and government uh, secrets and such, that uh, it's a two-part question. So you're, you're deep into research. How did you gain access? And, and was it particularly tough and or easier than one might think? So this question one. Question two is, yeah. what, was, what was one of the, um, uh, the cooler or more highly secretive aspects that you ran across <laughs> that that wowed you i did quite a bit of research on this book actually probably almost more than any other novel i've done over the years and i was able to tour the pentagon twice uh, i was able to uh, visit there's a there's a um i I'd, i wouldn't say it's top secret because people know it's there but it's y12 is in oak ridge tennessee it's a department mm -hmm. of energy site and it is very secretive and but I was able to take a, uh, at least a bus tour through part of that. It was just amazing. Um, you know, at the time, there was uh, this small museum. And they're like, yeah, we'll take you on a bus tour through Oak. I'm like, sign me up. You know, let me do this. It's amazing. And, and um, But I was thinking about, like, just the Pentagon. I had made some contacts in the military. And one of them said, you know, I can take you on a tour of, of the Pentagon. Um, and so this is a, a few years ago, if I recall, it was actually during, um, 
a government shutdown. Like that weekend is when we were at the Pentagon. And so we're walking along and all of a sudden, like, I think it was like the Department of the Air Force's direct, I don't know what their, what their title is, Who, whoever's the director of the Air Force, like walking past and a guy I was with had been former Air Force. And he's like, do you know who that was? I'm like, I don't know who that was. He's like, that's literally the, I can't remember the, the name of the Joint Chiefs or whatever. It's like, oh, I, that's cool. The thing that was fun for me was just like being in the Pentagon and looking out and the windows from the outside just look normal. But from the inside, when you look out, they're yellow tinted windows and uh, they've been treated. Obviously, they're bulletproof and treated against other kinds of attacks and stuff. But I mean, that was just the kind of detail that I wanted to stick into Broker of Lies, where people were reading it. And they're like, I didn't know that. You know, when you look out the windows, everything is yellowish tinted out of the Pentagon. And um, so anytime I can find a little detail like that, I always try to throw it, throw it in the book. Because I feel like people are intrigued, you know, by sort of the ins and outs of some of those programs and, and institutes and government well, organizations. Sure. Besides, you're giving us an inside peek that we would never have access to. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Uh, so the people that I researched with were were fantastic. They were very helpful, uh, and um, and so I was trying to think of. I did um, I did some combat training, like close quarter combat training, a few years ago. That I tried to use some of the um, information in the fight scenes in the book. Of course, I'm no no expert on close quarter combat, but it was pretty amazing to to train under some people who. Literally, they're like, come at me with a knife. Stab me. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, stab me. Come on. Like, so they give you a knife. And the next thing you know, you're on the ground. The knife's over there. And they're holding you like, what? What just happened? I don't know what just happened here. So. If, if you were going to tell me that all of a sudden you, you have a degree in Krav Maga or something, I was going to go, oh, <laughs> he really does do his research, doesn't he? No, I mean, years ago, I studied Taekwondo for a little while. But that was... It was more all the the forms and stuff like that, but uh, but no, I don't have any experience except just getting de uh, disarmed and beat up and and stuff by by a couple of these experts. <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of Tennessee, you live in Tennessee now, don't you? Yeah, we live uh, over in the eastern corner near the Appalachian Mountains. We always call them Appalachian here. Some people say App Appalachian, but um, but so we kind of live up. And nestled up at the base of the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Lynchburg, in between Lynchburg and Winston Salem, so I'm very familiar with oh, that. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. There's there's very few places quite as beautiful as that on the in the country. No, it's true. I've traveled around quite a bit, and of course, there's a lot of amazing sites out west and the north northwest and so on. But but I. I wouldn't trade where I live for just about anywhere. You know, it, it is beautiful. And I love to get out on the Appalachian trail to go for a trail run or hike. And it's only 20 minutes from my house. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's pretty amazing. And people here are great. Moved down here 96 from the Midwest to uh, pursue a master's degree in storytelling. If you can believe it is the only college in the world that offered that. And uh, we just, I fell in love with the area and we've stayed here ever since. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was reading your bio about a master's mm. degree. I've never heard ever, 
of a master's yeah. degree in storytelling. So what, what school did that and how in the world does that come about? So it's uh, East Tennessee State University, and uh, because nearby, there's a little town called Jonesboro, where there's sort of been a, um, I guess, a sort of a resurgence, a revival of oral storytelling over the last 50 years. So there's a festival there, there's a lot of interest in storytelling, and so in this region, uh, of course, oral tradition is, is, is kind of a big, big part of our, uh, the area and, and storytelling and so on. And so, uh, so yeah, I'd heard about this program, and I was like, that's crazy. I want to look into that. So I guess this is back in the early 90s. I flew down, met with the director of it, and uh, she's like, yeah, you have advanced storytelling classes, story dramatization, linguistics. And, and uh, so she said a lot of people who study either become teachers, librarians, ministers will take the course, some performers. So I was like, I got to do this. This is amazing. So... Yeah, so I finished that in '97, and uh, have been have been uh, telling stories in one way or another ever since. I've got a question that's been going through my mind since uh, I uh, I hooked up with you electronically via social media. Yeah, and I wonder how. And we're going to come back to broker Blast. How have you managed to write with such such success in both fiction and nonfiction? And Christian uh, works, which I think yeah. includes, and then educational, like business educational. <laughs> I don't. I have not talked to many authors that are. Uh, I guess that would be a quadrifecta. <laughs> quadrifecta. No, it's it's fascinating. You know, I got started writing for magazines back in the '90s, and then wrote for I guess about 80 different magazines over the years, and uh, so I started to write some books. Um, for uh, educators on storytelling, you know, after I'd gotten the degree, and uh, and so I started to do that. And then eventually did some inspirational books, like you mentioned, and um, and but I was just like, I want to tell a big story, like I want to tell, you know, write a novel if possible. And so uh, I went to my publisher who had done some nonfiction books. I said, man, I want to write a novel. I just want to tell a big story. Do I have to write the whole thing first? I was like, everybody tells me you got to write the whole thing first. I was like, I don't want to do that. He said, well, send us 50 pages and we'll we'll look at it and we'll see. So I sent 50 pages of what eventually became The Pawn. And um, they gave me a three-book deal from the 50 pages. And so then I was off and running on writing my, uh, my fiction. And so, you know, since then I've done a few more uh, books on the craft of writing, craft of storytelling. Um... But I'd say ever since, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, I've mostly been focused on the fiction, the novels. Tendell, which is the publisher that this book comes through, and I have to imagine several years. Now, I grew up as a PK, so my my, pa- my dad was a pastor. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah, so I'm very familiar with Tendell <laughs> uh, being a kind of classically a faith-based publishing company, correct? Yeah, yeah. So when I saw that, I thought, now this is interesting because I would not call Broker of Lies a, it's certainly not a faith-based story. However, uh, I did find it interesting that you were, you managed to sprinkle uh, verses from the Bible in throughout it. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, so he's, well, uh, he's, he's doing a little bit of uh, evangelical work inside his uh, <laughs> secular work. Amen. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... 
I just try to be honest with characters. And there's a character, like you mentioned Travis, he's dealing with the fact that his wife was, you know, he lost his wife in this fire. And he asks a lot of questions. Like he wants revenge, basically, on the people that did it. And so he he talks to people about uh, the difference between justice and vengeance. And is there a difference? And when should we, you know, pursue uh, justice on our own? And and so, of course, someone says something like, well, vengeance is mine, you know, I will repay, saith the Lord, or whatever. And so, you know, some of those come in, but I think naturally, um, obviously, the story is not meant to preach a sermon. It's, it's to tell a great story. But some of the characters sure. do have big questions, moral questions. And, um, and so, actually, that's one of the reasons I like, like writing crime is because the, uh, a lot of questions of morality are just natural. Like if someone commits a crime, a murder, let's say, well... Are they a good person who just did a bad thing? Are they a bad person? Um, are, you know, what is the difference between people? Is free will real or is it an illusion? Uh, is Does God matter? Does he exist? Does he not exist? And, you know, all, what is justice? All these questions, is, they're natural when you deal with these. And so I always like to get my characters asking big questions. So, like, I've never started a book with a message I'm trying to get across. I always start with a dilemma I'm trying to explore. So, with uh, with Broker of Lives, it was, you know, what's the difference between justice and vengeance? Do they do they ever meet? And is there a line or not? And uh, with one of my books, it was, you know, what's more important, protecting the innocent or telling the truth? I was like, I'm going to explore this question, and we're just going <laughs> to see where it goes. So, yeah, for me, I like like asking big questions. Well, I tell you what, I, you, you happen to choose one of my favorite aspects of this book. I loved when you went down that short path about revenge. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, it's, it was so deftly done. It wasn't, it wasn't hammered over your head. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't overdone. So I, not only did I appreciate it, but I respected it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And while we're on this, because your your perfect tee up time here, I want to go right into Travis Brock because your lead character. First of all, that dude has been through a lot. Um, <laughs> and and before I go any further, make sure I'm set, stating this correctly. This is a debut series with uh, Travis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, actually. Okay, cool. Because I thought. Since I'm a new reader of yours, I thought, okay, has this guy been around? I don't think this guy's been around. And if he hasn't, what a great <laughs> way to launch him into the yeah. into the psyche of the reader, because this yeah. guy is coming with a world full of baggage. Mm -hmm. And um, so I want to start with sharing with my audience where he came from and what would you and how would you say well, you would definitely say he's different than your ordinary thriller <laughs> protagonist. Yeah. Yeah, so a couple of things come to mind. One is, um, you know, in, in, in some kind of uh, realm, an action story usually has a character who's equipped in some way to face the struggle that he faces. So you have a cop or you have a spy or whoever it might be, and you have action because he's equipped to, to tackle it. Then in some types of thrillers, you have a character who's really not trained to face this, he has to rise to the challenge in, a, in some way. So, so Travis is that kind of a character. He's not a kick-ass kind of, you know, martial arts kind of guy or anything like that. He works as a redactor for the defense, uh, defense department. So basically he's got this almost eidetic memory 
and he studies all of the different top secret programs that we have and uh and and he decides when a freedom of information act request comes in what can be released to the public and what cannot and so he's like he knows all of our secrets he's the one person who knows all the secrets and i just thought that would be a fascinating character to write like i've never seen anyone approach a character like that in fiction or in movies television and so on we have lots of fbi and spy and at cia and that's all great i mean i've written an fbi series but but this guy was different because he isn't trained in that field and he kind of makes me think of like early jack ryan in um in like the hunt for red october or something where it's kind of this analyst but he gets thrown into this circumstance and has to has to rise to the challenge and so so uh so that's that's travis a bit and um and then he does meet up with someone who is kind of more of the trained operative within the book so um so the two of them end up having to uh, having quite a bit of an adventure trying to stop a terrorist attack actually in knoxville uh, tennessee yeah. yeah i like the fact that he was an what i would call an average joe an ordinary bear i yeah. mean he's not he's not this specialist and i dig all the specialists i like the james bond sure. i like the jack ryan's i love the James Reese's, all these guys, right? But it's really refreshing when you got a guy come out of nowhere who <laughs> is suffering uh, major burns, and the only real secret weapon he has is this memory. So I think that yeah. was really cool. Also, yeah. I want to give you kudos. The kudos. I'll I'll admit my ignorance while lifting you up, and that is this: when I saw. <laughs> Um, identic memory. I'm like, I get it. Okay, I've heard that word before. I don't know what it is. It's <laughs> the diction. So I'm looking it up. I'm like, oh, it's basically photographic memory. And then I went to drill yeah. down. And identic memory is more uh, often found in younger children and less in older. And it tends to be more temporary, where photographic memory tends to be more powerful, older folks, and uh, a lasting memory. So you took me to school. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, when I was doing research on, on this book and on memory, I, I, I found just these amazing stories. There's, there's a woman I think who lives up in the Northeast. I can't remember if they actually even stated her name or not to try and keep her, her identity private, but, but she remembers every plot from every TV show that she's seen. Um, since she was 12 years old she's like in her 50s so you could say what what aired you know in 1991 on whatever show it was and she'll tell you the plot she knows she can remember it all but for some reason she started to remember stuff when she was 12. like before that she didn't have this amazing ability or whatever and um and so so it's it's also fascinating that there are some people who have almost like memento i don't know if you ever saw the movie memento Chris uh, Manone, yeah. Like this, yeah, it's a short-term memory. How do you how do you keep a personality intact when you can't remember who you are? And oh so, my God. Uh, yeah. So just the ideas of memory, uh, what we remember, how do we remember it? Photographic or or all these different types of memory. Memory is just it's amazing to me. And there's been a lot of research recently. It kind of looks at memory not so much as recalling what happened uh, as 
as it is a tool to predict what might. So in other words, like our memories are flawed. <laughs> right. Like, you know, eyewitness testimony and stuff is, is, is not as accurate as we like to think it is. So what is the purpose of memory? Well, some people will say, well, the purpose of memory is so that you can predict how things might occur in the future and you can adapt and, and things like that. So just the emerging, you know, theories of memory uh, and, and, and then also these memory palaces. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but where people kind of create in their mind this, uh, maybe a palace or, or a building or whatever, a castle or something like that. And then like in each room, this is how they can remember maybe super long lists and things like that. Like there's now there's memory competitions and, and things like that where people will try to, uh, I think one of them is to memorize um, two decks of cards as quickly as possible. Like the, the card, the, the order of the card. So they'll give you two decks of cards in like 30 seconds or a minute or whatever. And then you look through it and then they hand you two more decks and you have to put them in the right order. And they can do it. Like you can memorize, they can memorize two decks of cards in like a minute. Oh. It's just, it's, it's astonishing. And it's, it's fun to just explore. And uh, I'm, that's not me <laughs> by any means, but, but it, it is a fascinating field. And, and uh, so it was, it was fun to research kind of some of that stuff. And when I drilled down that rabbit hole of memory, come to find yeah. out we can actually train our memory. I know yeah. you can call me Captain Obvious. You can actually <laughs> your memory to improve and i thought you know you could probably exercise it a little bit like a muscle like crossword puzzles but no evidently you can yeah really raise the bar yeah there are different you know tools and 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 uh, techniques that i mean one thing it, uh that they'll try to do is um uh i'm trying to remember exact words but like one one thing is make associations that's huge Repetition is huge. And then, um, you know, making... Uh, so when I meet someone right now, I'm trying to use some of these techniques. Like one is, if I meet someone who's tall and his name is Paul, I just think, okay, call Paul. I remember his name. <laughs> just right. little associations. And then I try to review it in my mind. So uh, so it's, it's been interesting to, to do some of that. Oh, concentrate, associate, and... Um, review. So CAR. If you can remember CAR, you can remember one of their um, the techniques. You know, concentrate on it, make a different associations, and then repetition, review it. And um, and it, I mean, it's a simple thing, but it it can very much help. Yeah. Gotcha. That's awesome. Uh, we mentioned earlier you're talking about one of your nonfiction books, and I want to circle back around if we can about that because you you've written uh, let's see, the art of the tale, troubleshooting your novel. Mm -hmm and story trump structure. So tell me yeah. how you chose those as being crucial to uh, tools in your toolbox, for instance. I mean, I, I want to hear just if you can give me a, because I'm fascinated by it. anybody who can teach me any little thing to be a little bit better <laughs> at this craft, I want to know. And I, I'm, I don't want to belabor it because we're really here for broker of lives, but it no, is part of fine. your body of work. So. so story trump structure is really about how to break the rules and, and write better fiction. So a lot of times people will say, oh, a story needs three-act structure. You should outline it, plot it out, templates, formulas, all that kind of stuff. 
that never, never, never really worked for me. And so I'd never found a book that explains how to write organically without a plot or outline or anything like that. And so I was like, well, this is what I do, so I'll just write one. So that's Story Trump Structure really talks a lot about organic writing and, um, and how to break the quote rules, we'll just say, to navigate through writing better fiction. And Troubleshooting a Novel is really, it's almost like a checklist guidebook when you have a book to be able to go through every aspect of the novel. There are 80 short chapters, like three to four page chapters that deal with every aspect of your novel from dialogue to tension to, you know, attitudes of characters and so on. And then like, it'll tell you how to identify a problem and how to fix it. So that was a crazy one to write because I'm used to teaching fiction writing as far as like suspense, thrillers and action, tension. But for that book, I had to become an expert on every aspect of the novel. So it was a learning experience, but it was, it was that was a lot of work to write that book. Um, the Art of the Tale really w is focused on oral storytelling. I mean, the principles applied to writing as well, but what happened with Art of the Tale is I thought I knew what a story was. Like, I have a master's degree. I've taught for 20 years around the world, storytelling, writing. I've written two books on writing, but when I was writing The Art of the Tale, I realized that I was maybe, I'll say, not wrong, but I had a misconception of what a story is. And so when I wrote Art of the Tale, I really tried to unpack this new theory that I have of, of story. Um, and that is that, that basically every story has four elements to it, but all great stories have two additional elements. If you can understand the elements, how they work together, no matter what genre you write, if it's short fiction, screenplay, novel, horror, rom-com, police procedural, whatever, it'll improve it. So a lot of the books on storytelling and writing kind of give you a formula that works maybe well for one genre. But if you try to apply it to a different one, it might work for a fantasy book, but it doesn't really work for a police procedural or, or a romance or something like that. So that was this book. Um, and, uh, and it's, so it's a new theory of kind of new theory of story. All right. There's, I want to jump back to the very first one because I'm sitting here when I read the, this, uh, researching you, I'm like, okay, I, I always try to, because I'm gifted the book that like broker of tales is given to me to read for the show. So I also try to go, how can I give back to this author? So I'll often go buy another one of your works. Oh, and so yeah. when I saw these three books, I'm like, I'm going to get one of those books because I know I'll always, <laughs> if, if I walk away with one thing, it's worth yeah. the price admission to me. So here's my question. I'm one of yeah. those guys that I, I'm going to reference PK again, because with PKs, we <laughs> don't like rules. We don't like to follow rules, right? <laughs> because we're rebellious by nature. So there. Um, so I'm one of those guys, though, though, I will try to break it down and research it. So I'm out there, by, you know, getting all of William Goldman books on screenplay writing. I'm getting uh, Blake Snyder's uh, Save the Cat. And I remember one book. I broke the entire thing down beat by beat by Save the Cat. I mean, meticulous mm. detail. And by the end of it, I was so crazy with myself. <laughs> and I so hated it that I said, there's got to be somebody somewhere who believes in some kind of organic way yeah. 
Because then on top of this, when I found out that you were a pantser and not a plotter, I'm like, maybe I have a kindred soul <laughs> connection yeah. here because it sounds like Stephen might be right up my alley because you believe, and I think, I think you did this book with very little outline, correct? Yeah, I don't outline at all. When I write a novel, for instance, I've never started one where I knew how it would end. Uh, and so, like, even if I try to outline one scene, it always ends up different than what I imagined it would look look like. So I love to teach people how to actually write that way, to write organically, to listen to the story, to respond to the story, and not to feel tied into certain... I mean, you can read books, and they'll be like, 20% of the way into your book, introduce subplot B. And then you have... And, and it's like... Um, it may be that some books fit well into that, but I would never want to start with that. I would always want to start with story. Story is more important to me than following a template or a formula. So to put a pin in that or a button on that is yeah. if I was going to get three at one of those three books, it, it's going to be story Trump structure, isn't it? No, it sounds like you'd enjoy it. And um, I really do try to take you through how to do it you know for instance it isn't okay when I, when i write i basically ask four questions that uh, sort of shows me where the story will go so you know one is what would this character naturally do and that has to do with believability and causality and like if you if you're writing a scene you're like i don't know what should happen just ask yourself what would the character do let them do it it'll feel natural to readers the second is, how can I make things worse? So that has to do with escalation and tension. So it's like, I'm always asking, how can I, how can I have, keep it believable but make things worse? Um, and then the third is, how can I add a twist or pivot the story into a direction they don't anticipate but do appreciate? So like when they get there, they're like, oh, I never saw it coming, but totally makes sense. And then the fourth question is really, are there, are there any promises I've made that I have not yet kept? And so I feel like we make promises regarding the, the direction of a story, the genre of the story, and uh, I want to make sure that I keep those promises. But, you know, what, what readers anticipate, they think, this is important. Like, he brought this up. I wonder what will happen. And, and so I found that no matter what scene I'm working on, one of those four questions will help to, help to resolve the plot problem and lead the story forward. All right. Well, that's going to be the book that I snag because uh, <laughs> you, you you pulled me in. You, you put the hook right around my neck. All right. Um, oh, this is what I was going to say. I remember I was speaking with Jeffrey Deaver on a show. Oh, yeah. On an episode way back. And we brought up this topic of pants of water. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, no, I, I really like to pants it. However, I do plot it. And then, he, and then come to find out he writes an exhaustive outline <laughs> to the point that he's practically, like, I think he told me he can easily write a 100 to 200 page outline. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I've spoken with Jeffrey. He was on my podcast as well. And I think he said 200 page outline. Yeah, <laughs> six months on the outline, and then he'll work uh, the rest, like three months or whatever, on the, on uh, you know, filling it out, fleshing it out, and finishing the story. It's completely different than the way I approach stories. 
Yeah, and you know there are some of us who can appreciate following the rules of writing, but uh, I don't know. There's a piece of me that I feel constricted if I if if I paint my. It's almost like painting yourself into a corner. Yeah, uh, and there's a little bit of discovery that I always want to make, and I'm afraid I'm going to be so planned that I miss or negate or ignore the the surprise. Yeah, most definitely. I um, I actually uh, have written some on how to write yourself out of a corner for, for Writer's Digest magazine. I've written for them, like, and, um, you know, one of the things is, like, the best ideas that I've had in my life, the best twists, the biggest pivots have always come when I've written myself into a corner. And yeah. so I always encourage people, absolutely, you should write yourself into a corner. Yes. And then write yourself out in a way we don't anticipate. Um, because why would I warn people who are writers against going to the place where the best ideas await them? Like, that's, that's crazy. Why would I ever do that? So, yeah, I kind of end up approaching things a little bit opposite from some of my peers, but just the way that the story works for me. Well, as we start to wrap it up, because uh, I want to be respectful of your time, uh, I, I always go back to the central focus. And I, and I found out on your podcast, you and I do this very same thing, and that is I always, you know, we're trying to get into the minds of the of our guests and what's the very best thing we can find out is hey what's your you know i i call it you know your best advice i also call it what's your secret so if you were offering your best advice to writers especially you know both a lot of writers up and coming writers listen to both of our podcasts so i'm curious especially given as many times as you've spoken around the world what is that great closing (laughs) well i would just i'll just start with this never fall in love with your first draft like um it's so easy to write something you're on fire for it's amazing you finish it this is the best piece of work that the world has ever seen uh but then set it aside for a day an hour a week a month whatever it might be for you and look at it with fresh eyes and um you know so many people I don't care where people publish, whether they self-publish or traditional publish or hybrid publishing or whatever it is, but I do care when. And I want to make sure that the people that I teach really have written the book to the very best of their ability and that that's the best that they have to offer the world. And so very often today, people are like, well, I'll write a draft, maybe go through it two times, and then I'll, I'll send it out there. That's really not what I would encourage people to do. I look at it like... Every book that we write might be our last. I mean, no one knows the future. No one knows what will happen. And so when I'm working on a novel, I think, if this were the last thing I ever write, I also want to be the best. And so uh, so for me, it's, it's a lot about trying to strive for excellence, going through that over and over again until we finally find the, the right words, the right pitch for that, that scene, that story. You know, it's funny you should say that, Stephen. Just the other day, I ran across, I'm notorious for, I'll be doing something, and I'll come up with an idea, and I'll jot it down, and I might even flesh it out to a paragraph. I might even go a full page. It might be a full scene. could be a whole chapter. And then I'll go, okay, that feels okay, and I'll set it aside. And I may leave it, I run across notes that I've left for three, five, ten years. 
Mm. I can pick it back up and there's a piece that doesn't work at all. And I'm mm. going, okay, but it was a, it was a catalyst to start my brain in that direction. I'll toss mm. it aside and I'll run with that. And it's amazing to your <laughs> point, what yeah. the population, mm. percolation, uh, yeah, simmering yeah. burner, what that will do for a story. Yeah, research on creativity really shows that that w- exactly what you just said, that like percolating in your mind, it actually really is an, a vital part of the creative process. Like, it's it's an aspect of it. And so sometimes even just going for a walk, literally for 10 or 20 minutes or whatever, and coming back and looking at it, you'll see it with a fresh uh, perspective. So, uh, so I'm a big fan of doing what you just said. Write something, you're on fire for it. Fantastic. Then just let it cool off for a minute before you, you know, send it out into the world and take a closer look at it. Yeah. Well, folks, if you'd like to learn more about Stephen James, go to stephenjames.net. You can also follow him on Twitter, as I do, at ReadStephenJames. And, Stephen, I'm so glad we connected. I feel like we're kindred spirits in a lot of ways, and I'm, I really love your insights. I appreciate it, David. Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, good good luck with the podcast. I hope it continues to do well. Yeah, and speaking of which, yours is still moving, right? I mean, do you you have plans to just keep riding off into the sunset with uh, with the the Story Blender podcast? You mean, or yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're continuing to move forward, and uh, we're booking some amazing guests, and so we try to try to. Um, Try to post one a week if possible, and it's a trick. But um, but we've just had like just great support from other writers, and and uh, so it's it's been amazing to uh, to see it start to grow really over the last few years. Yeah, and it's amazing, isn't it, Stephen? How long it takes for it to catch on? And people, first of all, that's question one. Question two is, isn't it true that just about the time you think you want to give up is when it kind of starts to kick off? <laughs> I've been there. I've been there, you know, you're like, is come on, man. So sometimes just booking guests and researching guests, coming up with questions, all this kind of stuff. Some of sometimes I'm just like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. But then after I meet someone and, and you know, just hear their story and hear their advice, I'm like, No, I can't give this up. It's too it's too amazing, you know. So yeah, it's yeah. it's a double edged sword. Yeah. Hey, by the way, before I forget, where can I snag story trump structure can i get that on amazon now uh, you can get it wherever you order books it should be available and I can... this one this one everyone's got a snag as soon as they can now this is dropping in what this month yeah this actually april 11th is the official release date so one week from today <laughs> once again Stephen, thank you so much for your time Thanks, David. Thanks once again to Stephen James for joining us here on The Thriller Zone. And even amidst a little bit of technical issues, I think we did just fine. I learned a lot. How about yourself? He is a great writer, a true gentleman, and uh, some great insights. Matter of fact, within five minutes of ending the show, I turned right around and bought one of his nonfiction books because, you know, both of us, we want to be the best writers we can. And I encourage you to support authors every way you can. Buy their books that they're pitching and other books that they uh, have in their repertoire. All right, I'm going to scoot out of here, make sure Pops is doing okay, and we'll be back in the home studio for our next edition of The Thriller Zone. The best thriller.
The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.